My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode six of season four. If you've ever dreamed of writing a great story, whether as a novel or a script for a movie or a TV show, then I have a treat for you today. Because my guest, Eric Bork, has written a book called The Idea, The Seven Elements of a Viable Story for Screen, Stage or Fiction. And by viable, he means a story capable of capturing the hearts and minds of millions of viewers or readers. And he should know what he's talking about because he was one of the writers and producers of one of the most successful TV dramas of all time, Band of Brothers, which followed the story of a company of US paratroopers throughout the course of World War II. I loved Band of Brothers when it came out back in 2001, and I've watched it several times since, so it was a real pleasure to talk to Eric about the making of the show and to hear what he's learned about storytelling from working on this and other productions. So, if you're a storyteller of any kind, you'll find this a really valuable interview. And even if you're like me, you know, you like watching TV and movies, but you've got no plans to actually write any, then it will give you a different way of looking at some of your favourite films and shows. So that's coming later in the show. But before we get to the interview, I'd like to invite you to join me on a trip to Utopia. If you're a self-employed creative, maybe you recognise this experience. You meet a business expert and get into conversation about your work. At a certain point, they give you a sympathetic look. Maybe put a hand on your shoulder and tell you you're doing it all wrong. What you should really be doing, they explain, is growing your business so that other people do the work for you. That way, you can scale it and earn a lot more money. If you do a really good job, you can sell it for even more money and retire early. What you have now, they tell you, is just a lifestyle business. And in their world, a lifestyle business is a bad thing. It's for amateurs and people who don't understand the realities of business. I've had this experience a few times myself. One of the most common is the person who tells me I shouldn't be doing all the coaching myself because it doesn't scale. Instead, I should hire other coaches do the work and license them to coach people according to the Mark McGuinness branded creative coaching system, TM. Then I could take a percentage of everything they earn and serve more clients while making more money. At a certain point, I'd have such a successful business that it could run itself, and eventually, I could sell it for a lot of money and retire early. It makes perfect sense. And when I think about doing that, I feel like I want to go and lie down and forget all about coaching forever. Because I didn't start coaching because I wanted to make a lot of money or to grow a scalable business or to sell it and do nothing for the rest of my life. I did it because I wanted to coach inspiring creative people. If I hired other coaches, they would do most of the coaching and I would spend most of my time managing them and finding them clients and I have no interest at all in doing that. Why go to all of that trouble so that someone else gets to do all the coaching? Yes, I could probably make more money like that. But if I just wanted to make money, I wouldn't do that. I would go and work in a bank. And crucially, 
if I had a business that meant I had to manage a team, I wouldn't have enough time for writing. And writing is one thing I am not going to give up. For a long time, I found it hard to shake off the idea that I was somehow doing it all wrong. Then one day, I read Derek Sivers' book, Anything You Want, based on his experience of founding CDBaby.com and accidentally, according to him, growing it to a $20 million business. Here's a quote from the book. When you make a business, you get to make a little universe where you control all the laws. This is your utopia. Derek's words rang true for me in a way that all the logical advice never did. And I realised I was already living in my utopia. You see, in my utopia, I get up every morning and walk my children to school. Then I spend the morning writing. In the afternoon, I coach inspiring creative people or interview them for my podcast. Then I go downstairs and play games with the children before their bedtime. After that, I enjoy a nice dinner with my wife and we watch a movie together. Some days I meet up with a client and we spend the whole day together working on the next phase of their amazing career. And that's pretty utopian too. I'm struggling to imagine a better way of spending my working days. It feels like a dream come true. And it's not just about me. It's about helping my clients and readers and listeners. Because as Derek Sivers goes on to say, when you make a dream come true for yourself, it'll be a dream come true for someone else too. So that's my utopia. But everyone's utopia is different, which means everyone's ideal business is also different. Great example of this is Michael Bungay Stania, who was a guest on this podcast back in season one. Like me, Michael is a coach. But he said in that interview that fairly early on, he realized he wasn't so much fired up by coaching people himself as by unlocking the potential of coaching in organizations. He's on a mission to help managers and leaders become better coaches for their teams. So he's built a team who are coaching and training people in organizations all over the place. And this inspires Michael to give his best every day. And he's having an outsized impact on the world. So even though we're both coaches, both technically in the same line of business, Michael's utopia is very different to mine. And the chances are your utopia is very different again. And even if your business doesn't grow or scale in the traditional ways, as a 21st century creative, you may find it does scale in very unexpected ways. In my case, there are other ways to scale than hiring a team of coaches. You see, in my coaching practice, I work with high achievers, so every person I coach is having a big impact on the world, and I can make a big difference by helping them perform at their best. Plus, my books and this podcast allow me to reach many more people than I could ever reach through coaching, even if I hired a team of coaches. So I'm not at all sure that I'd make a bigger difference by hiring a team. Remember Laurie Miot? another guest from season one. She took her knowledge and contacts as a designer specialising in branding for the wine industry and created a whole new business, Outshinery.com. She uses a very small team and computer-aided design to send her winery clients photorealistic publicity shots of their latest vintage before the wine has even been bottled. This way, she can create more images at lower cost and more consistent quality than doing things the old way, i.e. by shipping fragile bottles in packages to be photographed. Or remember Tina Roth-Eisenberg from season two, who's created a series of unusual creative businesses and projects via collaboration and technology, including a series of creative mornings lectures in 204 cities all around the world every month. 
Or how about Daniel Betcher, also in season two, who creates one-off, timeless pieces of exquisite jewellery? Or C.J. Lyons in season three, who self-published her thrillers and sold over three million books. Each of these creatives is creating their own utopia and building surprisingly scalable and successful businesses in the process. So the next time someone offers you well-meaning advice about how to grow your business, listen with an open mind. It may be that they've thought of something you haven't, and we should always be open to new ideas. But don't assume that they know better than you, even if they have more experience or success than you do. They may know the traditional business world better than you, but they don't know you better than you do. And only you know the kind of utopia you want to create. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school, on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. Eric Bork is a screenwriter, producer, script consultant and coach who has won two Emmy and two Golden Globe Awards for his work on the HBO series Band of Brothers and From the Earth to the Moon. For each series, Eric wrote multiple episodes and was on the creative producing team, alongside executive producer Tom Hanks and, for Band of Brothers, also with Steven Spielberg. Eric has sold original screenplays and written TV pilots for NBC and Fox and written screenplays on assignment for Universal Pictures, HBO, TNT, and Playtone. Eric also teaches for the UCLA Extension Writers' Program from the University of California, Los Angeles, and National University's MFA in Professional Screenwriting. He's been named one of the top 10 most influential screenwriting bloggers for his blog at flyingwrestler.com. The good news for writers is that Eric recently published a book where he shares what he's learned about what separates a successful story from the countless millions that never get past the slush pile. The book is called The Idea, The Seven Elements of a Viable Story for Screen, Stage or Fiction. And I invited Eric onto the show after several of my coaching clients told me how helpful they were finding the book in developing their latest screenplays for movies or for TV series. The idea is based on a simple and bold premise, that the actual screenplay or novel draft or play script a writer produces 
is only a small part of what will make it saleable or successful. Because if the writer doesn't start with a rock-solid idea for a story, then he or she is building a house on sand. So Eric recommends spending a lot of time and brain power up front, refining the basic concept of your story before you plunge in to writing the first draft. It's a difficult and uncomfortable process, but the idea makes the task much easier by laying out seven essential elements of a great story and showing you how to make sure your story works on the multiple layers that are required to really connect with a large audience. The idea is a short book, but it's one that's changed the way I look at TV and movie projects, and it's fast becoming one of the books I buy most often for my clients. Plus, Band of Brothers is one of my all-time favourite TV dramas, so I'm thrilled that Eric accepted my invitation to come on the podcast and share his insights with you. In this conversation, you'll hear how Eric managed to break into the fiercely competitive Hollywood screenwriting industry, becoming a co-writer and producer with Tom Hanks. He also talks about the process of developing his own writing skills to be able to perform at that level when the opportunity came along. And throughout the conversation, Eric shares great practical advice to help you make your own stories more powerful, and ultimately, more successful. If you're a screenwriter, novelist, playwright, or any other kind of professional storyteller, this interview is essential listening. And even if you're not in that category, you're probably aware of the importance of storytelling to engage audiences and further your career as a creative professional, so you may well find it useful as well as entertaining. As you'd expect, Eric is a great storyteller himself, so this one is a really enjoyable listen and an inspiring example of what it takes to succeed in one of the most competitive and compelling of all the creative industries. Eric, When you started out as a writer, what drew you to the idea of writing for the screen? Well, you know, uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to write for the screen necessarily in the beginning, but I think the one one movie that I saw that really kind of sparked something in me was this movie, The World According to Garp, when I was actually Mm -hmm. in high school when I saw that movie in the theater. And of course, it's a movie, if you know it, about a writer, um, a a Mm -hmm. fiction writer, Something about that movie really spoke to me and made me feel like I want to write something like this. Uh, I want to be a writer. And, but it, it took a while for me to fully embrace that I was definitely going to be a screenwriter. I went to college initially studying kind of interdisciplinary liberal arts, and then I flirted with being a music major and an English major. Um, but there was a really great film professor at the college that I was going to, and I took his introductory class. And it really kind of hooked me. Uh, so I knew I wanted to write. And eventually I realized I really want to write stories. And I think screenwriting was because it's a collaborative art form. Of course, the reality as a screenwriter is you end up working alone a lot, especially if you're a film writer versus TV. Even in TV, you're coming up with ideas for series and pilots. You're just on your own in your little, in your little room. Uh, mm-hmm. But eventually, if your stuff is getting made, uh, you know, it's a, this really exciting collaborative art form. And, and that's what appealed to me, uh, in addition to just the idea of I want to creatively express and tell stories that move and entertain people like some of my own favorites. And, you know, that little phrase you used is, is quite significant. You said, if your stuff is getting made, because it's a very competitive industry, isn't it? How yeah. did you get your break? Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in uh, Ohio in the Midwest, uh, uh, far from the uh, creative uh, industry, film industry. And I uh, originally real- eventually realized after I graduated film school with a bachelor's degree in motion picture production, one of the most useful degrees one can have, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, um, I decided I really wanted to be a screenwriter, maybe eventually a writer, director, but, st- but a writer and do it in the mainstream 
business. I flirted with the idea of do I stay in Ohio and sort of make independent films, which a lot of the people you know, from my program do. Uh, but, I, but I ultimately decided, no, I'm going to move to Hollywood and I'm going to um, work as an assistant in the industry, a secretarial assistant. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of researched that a little bit and, and I found out that you can start as a temp where you just fill in for somebody, you know, uh, who's away sick for a day or on maternity yeah. leave or whatever. Um, and so when I got to LA, I sort of registered with these temp agencies and with some of the studios had their own in-house temp pools through their human resources department. And I quickly started getting assigned to these temp assignments at 20th Century Fox Studios. Um, and eventually, long story short, that led to me working for Tom Hanks's production company as a temp. After I've been doing it for a couple of years, I'd worked on a series during those two years. It was still kind of part of being a temp, uh, but it was a writer's assistant job for the show Picket Fences, the David E. Kelly drama, uh, which mm-hmm. that felt like a huge break when I got that. But then after that season ended, I was kind of back in the temp pool at Fox uh-huh. and eventually got assigned to Tom's production company. And Tom had just moved his company onto the Fox lot, having been at the Disney studios prior to that. And it was really just him and his longtime personal assistant. And I was just the temp who was kind of like the guy that knew Fox and helped them get their office set up. And then they just kind of kept renewing me as an, as an ongoing temp. And eventually that turned into a permanent uh, kind of like second assistant to Tom Hanks, basically mm-hmm. uh, position. And that was when he was winning his back-to-back Oscars for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. It was a really cool time to be working for him as he became kind of like the biggest you know movie star in the world. And uh, I actually, it was my job to take the Oscar statuette to the Academy building the next day and get his nameplate put on. Whoa. Uh, so, you know, in, in my beat up Toyota Celica, I had Tom Hanks Oscar on the passenger seat. It's kind of crazy. Um, so very memorable part of that job. But so, you know, I was in the center of, you know, I was working for somebody who was really, you know, at the highest level in the business, but I was still an assistant. And I was writing on the side. I was always writing on the side. You know, I'd always carve out an hour a day or something, whether it was early in the morning or at night or, you know, sometimes in my day job, my that job, I would have free time during the day because like he went off to shoot Forrest Gump for like five months and I was the only one in the office and there wasn't really that much mm-hmm. to do. So I was writing at work some days. Um, so anyway, eventually I segued from writing original screenplays that no one was interested in that would take me maybe a year to write one uh, uh, to writing sitcom half-hour spec scripts of existing shows, which in those days, that was the best way to break into TV writing. You wrote existing shows, a sample episode to show you could do it. Nowadays, it's more about writing original pilots, um, although there is still some room for writing those spec episodes. Um and I took a class at UCLA Extension at their writer's program uh, in sitcom writing. I just thought, hey, it'd be fun to try my hand at this instead of these features that took forever. It seemed like an easier thing to write a half-hour uh, mm-hmm. spec episode of a show that someone else had already created. You know, a lot of the difficult part of it had already been done. Yeah. So I, I, wrote a, I wrote a Frasier spec script was my first one. Uh, that I started in that class. And I ended up showing it to a friend of mine who had worked with me on Picket Fences as a fellow kind of assistant level uh, employee who had recently signed with an agent as a writer, a kind of junior beginning agent, uh, which I'd known. And she liked the script, was willing to show it to the agent. The agent liked it, wanted to see what else I had that was original. So I showed her my latest screenplay that no one had been interested in. And she liked it enough to want to sign me. So I was working for Tom uh, as my day job, but she signed me and immediately gave me a bunch of notes on the script she'd signed me on, the Frasier script, so for me to rewrite it. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I rewrote it, and eventually she liked it enough to say, okay, now write your next one. And so over the course of maybe a year or so, I wrote a Mad About You and a Friends script as well. And she functioned, this agent, kind of like a manager would today, very hands-on, would read the outline, read every Mm -hmm. draft, give lots of notes. Agents don't typically do that. Uh, but she didn't, she was a very new agent at a small agency and didn't have a lot going on really. So that was very helpful to me. And eventually I had these three scripts and she was saying them out and not a whole lot was happening, but I was starting to feel like I'm moving in the direction of, I could eventually get a staff writer entry level job working on some sitcom. It'll probably be some brand new show that I haven't heard of. I might not like it very much. It may get canceled in its first few episodes, as they often do. 
but mm-hmm. that's kind of my plan of what I hope will happen. Um, but uh, life had other plans uh, in the sense that uh, Tom's assistant learning about all this stuff that I was doing said, oh, maybe Tom should read one of your sitcom scripts. Uh, I don't, I don't rem- know why she offered that, but, but it wasn't something I was going to ask Tom to help me in my writing aspirations. Sure. I knew that wasn't the thing to do in that position. Yeah. So eventually he read one or two of those scripts and pronounced me a talented writer. Uh, and uh, in his own kind of jokey, mocky, funny, warm way, uh, mm-hmm. and eventually offered me what became my big unexpected break, which was what if he promoted me to a new position at his company, and if I helped him kind of figure out this miniseries from the Earth to the Moon that he had just sold the idea to HBO in the wake of Apollo 13 success, Tom wanted to do this miniseries where he dramatized all twelve. Well, not all 12, 12 episodes covering all the other Apollo missions and that whole space program. Uh, and um, he'd bought, they'd gotten the rights to this book that had just come out. There was a new book about the Apollo program. And uh, he asked me if I would kind of like help outline the series, work with him to kind of figure out the series. He'd sold the idea, but we had to do the hard work then of like kind of creating sort of a Bible that you could then give yeah. to writers. Uh, who might come write scripts on the show, scripts of the miniseries. And I would also help find those writers. Uh, There were a couple other producers attached who were working on finding writers. So I accepted graciously that offer. Right, you didn't (laughs) Uh, think too long. (laughs) Yeah, I remember him saying something like, and by the way, if you don't want to do this, that's totally cool too. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I'll stay in my current job or just leave. Um, So... um, so that so that was my initial big break, and then you know we started working on that, and eventually created this kind of long outline, uh, and started finding writers, and eventually one of these other producers suggested maybe I should write one of the scripts. So I, you know, again I wasn't going to suggest it myself, but if someone else was going to say it, great. Yeah. So I ended up then uh, choosing one of the scripts to write myself, and it took a long time for that script to become one that people thought was any good. But once it did, I was then asked to rewrite some of the other scripts that maybe had issues. And, you know, I was kind of then in the, Tom's inside person who had been with him from the beginning and kind of really knew his taste, mm-hmm. uh, whereas these other writers were hired in freelance who might not have that advantage. So uh, so eventually I was writing, rewriting other episodes, doing, you know, last minute writing before shooting on some that I didn't get writing credit on. Others I got shared credit on. The one that I initiated, I got sole credit. And I ended up playing a role as a producer on it. Um, with the title co-producer, ultimately, uh, that I really just got to be there in the room, in the room where it happened, so to speak, for every single thing that happened. You know, it was, you know, casting, hiring directors on the set, in the editing room, etc. And then by the end, when it won the Emmy and all the other big awards that year for best miniseries, I got to share in that because I was one of like ten people with a producer credit. Wow, that's quite the story. And you know, that is. You can look at it out on the outside and say, wow, that's the dream gig. But to get the dream gig, you really did your homework. I mean, you were working on your own writing. You worked out where you needed to be, where the action was. And, you know, you weren't too proud to go in on the ground floor and make yourself helpful and be on hand when somebody asked the question, oh, what do you have? Yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't too proud because I knew I was nothing. <laughs> I had nothing. I was a kid from Ohio. I was lucky to have a secretarial job at 20th Century Fox of all places. It was like a dream dream come true. So each step along the way, it wasn't so much humbling myself as as it was, here's the next step forward that I could yeah. take. But I, I, I do want to highlight it because, you know, sometimes I talk to writers and they think, well, I've written all this stuff. Why am I not getting anywhere? And it's like, well, they're not putting themselves out there they're not being in the the arena where the the opportunities happen and i love the fact that you approached it with you know on both fronts yeah it really does help i mean people ask do you have to live in la to be a screenwriter and the answer is not technically especially if you're writing (laughs) features as opposed to tv but it helps and it especially helps if you can have a day job in the industry, which you know most people do that when they're still in their 20s, fresh out of college like I was. It's kind of hard to make a midlife change and go do that. But uh, you know, a lot of people that end up breaking through as writers uh, did have that kind of job. 
especially in TV, a lot of people become writer's assistants on a show and eventually get a chance to write an episode of that show. It's like the most natural segue. Uh, you know, there's no other way that where you're kind of already on the inside, kind of on the brink of it yeah. uh, than that. Okay, so you worked on From the Earth to the Moon, which was a terrific series and a great success. And then, if anything, you topped it with Band of Brothers, which was, you know, I mean, it really is one of the landmark TV dramas. And it, it was a huge success. It, it obviously had Hanks involved. I was looking at your co-producer credits include Steven Spielberg as well. I mean, what was it? What's it like to work on one of these big productions where there's there's an awful lot at stake, and everyone knows this 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 could and should be a big success. But what kind of pressure do you experience that, or what kind of atmosphere is there day to day? You know, I honestly didn't ever experience the pressure of this has to be a big success. I mean, there's pressure of like, what's my role in this? And if I'm writing a script, I want the script to be good. Yeah. But the overall pressure of the miniseries being a success, I mean, I, I was fortunate, I guess, to just be able to work on making it as good as it can be and not being, not feeling like, you know, I'm the one who's signing my name to this and is going to be judged or, you know, it's all on my shoulders. Because when you have Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg were the executive producers, uh, you know, it's really their project and you're working for them, you know, you're helping them yeah. do it. And H, you know, they're such mammoth names that, uh, HBO very much trusts them and leaves them alone and lets them, you know, do what they want to do. So I'm really working for them as opposed to working for HBO or feeling like, yeah. you know, I'm having to make this on my own. I'm part of a really big team. Um, but, you know, it, it was, it, it was, so I wouldn't say it really kind of had that pressure cooker feel necessarily. I suppose at times it did, but, um, but, you know, we had months and months and months to be writing before we started shooting, not to say there wasn't a lot of rewriting and stuff happening while we were shooting because there was, but um, it wasn't like when you're on a network series where you're having to churn out episode after episode and you're writing and shooting and editing all at once and the ratings mm -hmm. are coming in and you could get canceled at any moment. That actually is more of a pressure cooker in a way. With HBO, it's like you know, you're not going on the air until everything is complete and it's all done. And once you go on the air, ratings aren't really the main concern. You know, yeah. It's reviews and awards. And they both, both miniseries did really well in, in those two aspects. So... So that was cool. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of a reuniting of, of some of the same key people that had worked on From the Earth to the Moon in terms of producers, directors, and writers, as well as a bunch of new people. And Steven Spielberg being the main new person, Tom and he had done Saving Private Ryan. And, you know, Tom had now done this one miniseries. And I, I guess they got to talking about, let's do a, another HBO historical miniseries together this time. And they picked this Stephen Ambrose book, band of brothers to to adapt and then there were a team of us writers and i again got to be a, a writer producer um but you know we shot it in england it was it was really fun to be able to uh spend many months living in london and and shooting there and um so it was definitely a, it was definitely a step up in the sense that from the Earth to the Moon shot in Orlando, Florida. Nothing against Orlando, Florida, <laughs> but mm -hmm. London was kind of more fun. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> I guess from this side of the pond, Orlando seems relatively exotic. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> and maybe getting a bit closer to the theme of your book, which is called "The Idea: The Seven Elements of a Viable Story for Screen, Stage, or Fiction." What do you think it was about Band of Brothers that made it such a big hit? Obviously, it had a lot of backing behind it, but it really it won all the awards, broke all the records. What was it you think about that particular central concept at the heart of that series? Well, I think I think the the theme, you know, right there in the title was about brotherhood, and so it wasn't a war project that was just about you know let's save Private Ryan and bring him home, or mm -hmm. you know let's let's uh, you know, defeat Hitler on D-Day, um, or, and it also wasn't a war, it wasn't a war project. In, in my mind, that there, there are kind of like two kinds of war movies. There's the mission-oriented movie, like Saving Private Ryan, and then there's the kind of hell of being in war sort of hmm. movie, like a platoon or something, right? Yeah. You're either rooting for the mission, or you're focused on, you know, war is hell, and dehumanizing and this individual who's stuck in this war situation we feel for and relate to. So Band of Brothers kind of did both. And 
it did it with this focus on here, this, these group of guys that you're supposed to care about and care about their relationship with each other. And we're tracking them through the entire experience of the war, which I don't know that anyone had quite done that before. So there were missions each episode, some of them triumphant, some of them not. And the missions were exciting to watch. But it was also this, you know, getting invested in this group of people and their bond with each other, knowing that over time, some of them are going to die or be horribly wounded and are going to leave and new ones are going to come. And so I think it's that combined with HBO spent a whole lot of money to make it look and feel really authentic. And the people who pulled that off, production designers, cinematographers, etc., uh, did a really amazing job with making the audience, I think, feel like they're experiencing war. And I think both of those things, Saving Private Ryan, was a direct you know, inspiration and model for because it was yeah. also kind of trying to be about a, a group of guys you cared about who had a mission. It also depicted war, World War II, in a new way that people felt was incredibly authentic and placed you there in a way that nothing else had done before. And so the lessons from that you know, Steven Spielberg, he's kind of directly, you know, put those into the miniseries in terms of him kind of coaching the directors and, and all of us. And and uh, so we definitely were on the shoulders of that movie, I think. And, okay, let, let's start to think about your book, The Idea, because, you know, there's a load of books written about the whole process of of screenwriting but i think you've done something really new here which is to look at the essential before you get too far into the nuts and bolts of the script and the story arc and the, and the character development and plot so on is what is the basic concept at the heart of your story how did you get the idea for the idea <laughs> well i've been kind of coaching writers for the last kind of like 10 years uh, on their stories and, and screenplays and and series ideas and teaching screenwriting a bit as well as continuing on my own projects and and experiencing all the uh the hills and valleys of a screenwriting career and what i've realized over time is that the biggest mistake writers make and i very much include myself is that we tend to want to jump into the writing process too quickly before we have an idea that's really truly quote viable uh, and we don't realize, of course, that it's not truly viable because we probably don't get feedback on the idea the way we would on the finished script. But I think that tends to be a mistake because when I read a client's script, because usually people come to me with a finished script and just want me mm-hmm. to give feedback on it as opposed to an idea and they want me to help them as they develop it, although I do that more these days. But but historically, it's been, here's my finished script. What do you think? Uh, and, and I would say that 90% of the notes I have the notes that are the most critical, the most important, the most needing to be dealt with are notes on the basic concept for the story. On those first decisions that they made and kind of almost forgot about and took for granted as they then spent months or even years working on structure and outlining and writing script drafts. Um, Now, of course, there's a level of professional execution in terms of scene writing and structuring that has to be there. And most of these writers don't have that you know, either because it's definitely a long road to get to the point where you can write at that level. But I would say what I've noticed is that most screenwriting books and and classes and most writers are focusing on story structure and scene writing uh, and not so much is the idea worth writing. What is the basic idea? But it's really an idea business. And I learned on the business side, even when I was developing TV ideas as my only thing I was doing, pitching ideas to my agents and hoping they would like one. And then I would go pitch it out into the world and hope to sell it and sometimes sell and sometimes not and write the pilot and all that whole TV development world. I really learned that the fundamental idea that you could pitch in a two or three sentences, even in TV, matters hugely to the project's mm-hmm. chance of success And it's really not easy to come up with an idea that ticks off all the boxes that would make someone like my agents at CAA or a producer or a network executive say, that's something we want to do. That's a potential hit show. And sometimes it's it's an idea that's not that different from things that have come before, and it just has like one key fresh element or twist to it. Or sometimes Mm -hmm. it's something that feels just like strikingly original, uh, but 
but it's it's definitely you know the whole idea of a log line. It's not just oh, I need to be able to give the two or three sentence version of my project so that people have something to refer to it as. It's actually that two to three sentence version will reveal if it's a viable idea to begin with or not. So working on lots of different ideas that can be expressed pretty briefly like that and understanding what those ideas need to have to be sellable is something that I've become rather obsessed with both in my own work and in working with other writers. So I didn't see other books out there that that did this. And I felt like it was the one thing I was obsessed with, which is let's slow down and make sure the idea works before we start structuring it and writing it. So the whole book and it's inspired by blog posts I had done over the years where I would touch on some of these things, is really about, okay, if we take that philosophy and that approach, the book's not focusing on story structure or scene writing really hardly at all. What, what are the elements of a viable idea? How do you figure out if you have them? And how do you, how do you, you, know, how do you incorporate all of them? And so that's what the book became, this acronym for what those seven elements are, using the word PROBLEM as the acronym because every story is about a problem or every series is really about a problem that feels like it can never be solved until maybe the very end. And okay, I really want to dig into the the elements of the problem first, but just just to back up slightly, you've got this really provocative rule in the book, which I love, called the the 60-30-10 rule. Can you explain what that is and, and why it matters? Yeah, that's in terms of the percentages, you know, they add up to 100%. So in terms of the three things that the, the three elements of a project you, you or the three levels of writing. There's the basic idea, then there's the story structure, and then there's the ultimately the scene writing, the words on the page that we all see. In terms of how important they are, my sort of rough guesstimate uh, uh, is that 60% of what makes something ultimately, quote, sellable enough or perceived as good by the greater world is in the basic underlying idea that you could express in a page or less, or even a log line. 30% is in the structural choices, and 10% is in the actual scene writing. Now, again, those structural choices in the scene writing, if they're not professional level, can totally you know screw you. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, but in terms of the importance, the hard work, the time spent, not necessarily the time spent, but the the ultimate value to the project. It's like getting the idea right matters more than half, and everything else is you know less than half. And I love what you said just now about it's it's important to slow down at the beginning because I think so many of us, whether it's whatever we're writing, we're so eager to get words on paper and feel we're being productive and feel we're getting somewhere and we're getting our the daily word count. A lot of writers use. What you're saying is really at the beginning, maybe the fewer words is better and and more thinking is better, but that I guess that feels uncomfortable. Well, I think it does, and uh, because yeah, we're all that way, and I'm still that way. Like I struggle with doing this myself on my own projects, you know, because right. you do want to get to the writing, uh, yeah. and and often the writing, especially when you're writing actual scenes, is more fun and playful mm-hmm. than the idea generation process, which feels very amorphous and very like all, you know, like you're, you're just moving these building blocks around and it can be hard to make that feel fun and creative. The one caveat I will say, because I'm, I'm imagining some of your listeners now maybe balking at some of this is this, this book is really aimed at commercial fiction or screenwriting. I'm not sure mm-hmm. it applies so much to literary fiction, or anything yeah. that you might see as artistic, experimental, more niche niche audience. Um, this is more if you're trying to sell your work, reach a large audience, make a living at it kind of thing. And I'm not saying that's the better approach, by the way, for a creative person either. I'm just saying that that's what I'm trying to do. And the people that come yeah. to me are mostly trying to do that. And my dealings with the industry, the mainstream industry, and even I think to some extent independent films for them to break out and be successes these kind of principles apply to that. Yeah. So when you say viable, you mean in terms of mainstream mass appeal? Uh, yes. And, that, and mass appeal doesn't necessarily mean it's an Avengers movie, but <laughs> it yeah. just means it could be, uh, it could, you know, it could 
you know, reach millions of people successfully. You know, it could, it could, uh, you know, cause uh, mainstream could be, you know, it could be a, a, a movie that costs 2 million to make and then makes 10 or 20 million. That's still probably to make 10 or 20 million at the box office. You know, probably there's some exceptions out there, but even, even those kind of movies, I think these kind of principles apply to those, you know, with fiction. I mean, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, one of the greats, uh, who whose prose is just has a use of language and explores thought and character in a way that's just revelatory um, and brilliant. You know, this kind of stuff may not matter as much because you're not necessarily trying to write a quote good story in the same mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Um, I suppose like if you're writing the corrections or something, I mean, there's still story there, but it's maybe not as focused on these principles. But if you're writing, you know, young adult fiction or you're trying to write the next, you know, the next Twilight or crime fiction or anything that's going to be a bestseller, um, for the most part, I think these principles uh, apply to fiction as well. Yeah. And I think even if you are writing something that's fairly niche or art house or literary or, or however you like to describe it, I don't think it does too much harm to know some, you know, the elements that would make it more successful or popular if you wanted it to be. You know, I think we can all learn from looking at, well, what are the kind of things that are like to grab people's attention? And you don't necessarily have to go with everything. Well, I certainly am not going to disagree with you on that point. And, and I, I would also say for me, it's grabbing attention. And it's I think the most important part for me is emotional investment. To me, yeah. and, and again, yeah. I come from screenwriting, and it's and it's all about that. Getting the audience emotionally invested in what the character or characters are going through, what their difficulty is, what they're trying to achieve. That's really, to me, what the screenwriter's job is. Uh, and emotional investment includes entertaining them and causing them to, to get to an emotional state that they want to be in. So that's one side of it. But if, if they just find it interesting on an intellectual level, it generally doesn't work. Not that that's what you were saying, but it just made me think of yeah. this point that emo- yeah. to me, it's, it's all about why should I care? When I read a script or watch a movie or a series, why should I care? Why do I want to keep watching or reading this? And I think that's the main thing writers struggle with is how do you get millions of strangers to care about hmm. your character and the situation they're in and your story and, and you know, believe in it and become feel like it's happening to them and that they're part of it? Uh, the, the, the successful things find a way to do that. And it's not as easy to do that as it might look. Uh, and these, a lot of what I've explored and racked my own brain with as a writer is, well, how do you make them care? What are the reasons why I care here and I don't care here? How do I codify those principles? And that's what the book tries to do. So maybe this is a good point for us to look at these seven elements of the problem structure. Could you just run through these quickly yeah. for us? We've got yeah, a sense so, of it. Yeah, so the, the acronym is PROBLEM. So uh, my, my, my concept here is that your idea for a story or for a series or a book or whatever movie, uh, ideally you would do well in these seven areas, that your story idea that you could pitch to somebody, even in a log line, a few sentences, a quick pitch, would clearly reveal itself to be, uh, well, there's a problem at the center of the story, right? Every story, including a series, Mm -hmm. there's a problematic situation at its heart. So that problem needs to be these seven things. First, it needs to be punishing. That's the P, which means the characters are the main character typically, or characters that you're following are um, kind of beaten up and kind of in hell, under siege, that you know it presses them to their limits it's incredibly difficult to solve whatever it is and it usually gets more difficult and more complicated as the story plays on uh, the r is for relatable which means the audience needs to emotionally identify with your main character or characters in a very strong way to feeling like they almost become them and are experiencing the story events themselves and traditionally that might mean that the characters are likable in some way uh, and or they're facing problems that make us care about them, even if they're not necessarily inherently likable. But the problems grab us so much that we're like, how are they going to solve these problems? I hope they can solve these problems. Um, The O is for original, meaning that it has to be fresh and unique to you in some way or unique to the world of story. But you don't have to completely reinvent the wheel either. Uh, Sometimes you can go too far trying to be original and not observe these other six elements enough. So original means it's a fresh twist on something familiar, uh, on Mm -hmm. a familiar genre or type of story 
tends to be a better way to go than to say, I have to come up with something that's completely brand new in every possible way, which is kind of impossible to do, especially while still being punishing, relatable, and all these other things. Uh, the, B, the B word is believable. Uh, and this might seem obvious, but so many scripts and you know episodes of TV I could watch tonight fall apart if I don't believe it all as real. You know, you may have some fantastical premise at the heart of your story that you have to get the audience to buy into. And usually you should do that at the very beginning and make it really clear what that is. And then from that point on, you want to see human beings behaving in ways that that feel believable, that feel real given the situation. And what sets writers really apart, uh, you know, where you have people in the industry saying, wow, they have such a unique voice, such a great voice. Maybe there's some of that's about originality, but I think a lot of that is when a writer's capable of writing something, characters, a setting, a situation, a world, in a way that feels so authentic and so real that you mm-hmm. really feel like you're living in that world and that you yeah. feel like this writer must be from that world. You know, right. that <laughs> level of authenticity or quote realness or believability is really golden and not not easy to achieve. Um, especially while you're trying to do all these other things, which might seem like they go against that sort of realness factor, because you're also trying to be, you know, entertaining and punishing and original and all that. So uh, the L word in problem is life altering, which is about stakes, meaning it's got to be really, really important for the story problems to be solved. The audience has to care because it feels like, you know, uh, for, for, for life to be livable, uh, these things have to be solved. Like it's unacceptable if they're not solved. They have to be, you know, they, they force the characters to focus on the problem right now and everything else goes out the window. It's so important that it gets solved on a sort of primal level as the Save the Cat books talk about. You want it to feel primal, mm-hmm. especially I'm thinking about, you know, screenplays, you know, now. You, you want it to feel like for all to be right with the world, this problem must be solved. So it can't be medium to low stakes. It can't just be, well, yeah. this character is going to like lose their job. Well, they could find another job. Like there's certain kinds of things. There's a list of stakes in that chapter that are acceptable that are big enough. Life and death obviously being the biggest, but you know, stories have worked with non life and death stakes, uh, you know, many times as well, but still it has to feel like it's almost like life is at stake for it to feel big enough. Even if it's not literally life, it's life at stake. Um, and there's a lot of lot of ideas fall down because what are the stakes? Does this really feel important enough? Does this really feel big enough to make the audience go, oh my God, I care so much? Um, so the E is entertaining, which means let's not forget that it's the entertainment business. Uh, if you're in the f- film and TV world and you're really being paid to entertain people, they're picking up your book or watching your movie or series usually because they are promised a certain type of entertainment experience. They're going to be whisked away into a romance. They're going to be laughing their asses off in a comedy. Mm-hmm. They're going to be super excited by the action spectacle, whatever. You know, there's, there's a list of entertainment, types of entertainment that is in that chapter as well. You're trying to make them experience a set of emotions that they're coming to your product to experience. Remember, they're going to watch your thing or read your thing knowing what genre it is. Usually, and deciding, I want to watch this romantic comedy. I want to watch this, you know, this psychological thriller. I want to read this, you know, crime procedural or whatever it is. So, all of those different types of stories or genres have built in entertainment elements to them. They have methods in which they kind of grab people emotionally and keep them emotionally invested and, and bring them to emotional states as they're consuming the material that they want to be in, fascinated, amused, whatever. Um, the last one is M is meaningful, which has to do with theme and what your story is really about beneath the surface plot. Uh, what makes it kind of stick to your ribs, so to speak? What makes it relevant and resonant to people's lives in general? Yes, it's about a specific situation for specific characters, but it's exploring larger issues, situations, um, you know, elements of the human experience that hopefully a large number of people can feel like it, it's impactful and memorable and it kind of like shifts them in some way or it sticks with them and feels like it, it adds something to their life, it explores something that's meaningful to them. It's not just a throwaway entertainment experience, although if you're entertaining enough, 
like, you know, Transformers or something, you may not need to be so meaningful. You might still make a lot of money at the box office, so to speak. But when you're a writer trying to break in, being able to write something that feels truly meaningful is often that extra thing on top of these others that makes you really get noticed. So the bar is is quite high, isn't it, Eric? I know. It seems overwhelming when you think of it that way. It's It's hard to do all that. It is. It's hard. I struggle with myself every day as a writer. You know, not that I'm like using my own book and pouring over all these things because I've internalized it. But yeah, it's it's not easy to to achieve all that. And that's, I think, why, you know, not not many people who want to do this on a percentage basis actually break through and do it successfully. And even those who do, they might have one or two or three successful projects and then a whole bunch of ones that aren't. And I would argue that the ones that aren't usually have fallen down in one or more of these categories on an idea level, even though they maybe didn't realize it. But when I look at it in retrospect, I'd say, well, this just wasn't that entertaining or this just wasn't that believable. And that's why it didn't work. So would you say if any one of these is missing, then you're going to have serious problems? Um, Yeah. I mean, I hate to be too absolutist and, and rigid about it, but... Yeah, I do think if any one of them is seriously missing, because these are fundamental, elemental things. You know, uh, if if you're if you're if you're completely not entertaining, you're going to have a very small audience. Although <laughs> if you do all these other things well, like you know Manchester by the Sea or something, maybe that's not entertaining. Yeah. But it was so no. good in all the other ways right, that it right, at least right, won right. an Oscar or two and was a critical favorite. And you know, maybe it broke even, made some money at the box office because it like won Oscars and stuff. So. I think it's possible sometimes to have one of these be be less central if all the others are really, you know, working like gangbusters. But ideally, if, if you can get the full set. I mean, one thing I've discovered with clients, um, since I discovered the book, I've been sending it to them and saying, okay, we're going to go through the book and we're going to do a kind of a, a checklist. for Because at the end of every chapter, you've got a terrific checklist for how you know that it's believable enough or original or, or punishing enough. And we go through the concept for the the script or the, the novel or whatever it is they're working on. And what we usually discover is that it's not that the whole thing falls down, fortunately, but that they discover that they're really good at, say, three or four of these elements, but there's another two or three that they're not so good and that they've overlooked in you know, the pursuit of making the character, I don't know, original and believable. It's not that life-altering or it's not that entertaining and it's really opened up some great conversations about how you can just take each of these elements up to 11 so to speak in in spinal tap language i love that that's so that's so great to hear it warms my heart (laughs) and it's nice to hear that when you're working with people and i have my own clients same thing that it's like no a lot of this works but here's a couple areas that yeah that, that we could pay attention to to elevate it yeah i really think this is one of the books that i mean i'm always looking for books for clients but this is one of the books that i get the most enthusiastic oh this gives me somewhere i can go with this i've not had anybody say oh gosh you know that really crushed me i realized it it wasn't any good it was like oh no here's here's where i'm falling short and here's where i can go next to fix that well i love that because that was probably my biggest worry with the book was that it would feel soul crushing and as a writer i know what it's like to feel soul crushed on an almost daily basis it is a tall order i you know and i made the last chapter be be about you know what do you do with this and some ideas about how to work with the idea and the, this sort of problem acronym that i hope would help to give people a sense of it's not all so hopeless and impossible well, at the same time, you recognize it is a high bar, and that's why it's hard to succeed at this. Great. So this is a book that I think, I mean, for me, it's just transformed the way I look at films and TV. I mean, I'm watching stuff week in, week out, and it's showing me new ways of looking at it. And I think if you're in the business of writing stories to entertain and hopefully to make money and to get to get stuff sold... This is a book, I mean, it's it's fairly short. You could read it over a weekend, but it really will make such a difference to the way you look at each project going forward. It gets my wholehearted recommendation, and it's got one of the highest underlining density of books that I've read in the last 12 months or so. So, um, okay, let's maybe finish up with your challenge to the listener, Eric. I mean, you know, this is the point of the show where I like to ask my guests to set the listener a challenge to put some of the ideas into practice this week 
to do it or to get started in the next seven days. So what challenge do you have, Eric? Well, here's what I would suggest. I know that your listeners are a wide range of creative people. They're they're not all screenwriters. They're not all writers uh, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, although hopefully these principles are interesting even to those who aren't exactly. Um, what I would say is on this whole theme of you don't have to completely reinvent the wheel when it when it when it when when you're coming up with an idea for something. What I want to ask everyone is to consider this: take five projects you really love and whatever medium is that you're working. And this is about coming up with ideas, a sort of a brainstorming tool for ideas of things you might write. Five, five different projects uh, in that medium that you love. With each one of them, come up with your own idea for something unique and new that you might consider pursuing that only changes one key element of that thing. In other words, you're taking something and you're copying it, but you're changing one key element. Uh, And this may seem like it would lead to something really unoriginal uh, and clearly derivative, but actually if you were were to pursue one of those projects, you would find that over time it would end up changing more and more to where by the end no one would ever recognize it as having been this other thing with just one changed element. I remember reading Paul McCartney once said a way to begin songwriting is to think of a song you like, like Please Mr. Postman, and you come up with some slightly altered thing like I'm sorry Mr. Milkman, and then you start <laughs> pursuing like what that song would be. And by the time you finish the song, those words aren't even in it anymore, but it was like your launching point to, yeah. to something else. So I, in the book, I, I quote this, uh, this uh, producer manager, Victoria Wisdom, who I once saw give a talk where she said, you know, a lot of movies build off other movies. Like you have like the James Bond movies. Then you had, um, so you had this kind of like super spy. Then you had the super spy who didn't remember he was a spy, which is the born identity. Then you had two super spies who were married, and that was Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And then you had two super spies who were the kids of married spies, which was spy kids. And I thought that was really intriguing, that it was like you take this viable type of story that fits a genre and it's been successful, and you say, what's a way to do it that hasn't been done before? What's one element I can change that would kind of shift everything, but isn't me coming up with something totally original with nothing to start from, which is hard and intimidating to do. I love this, Eric. And it's actually making me think quite often, this is how I get going with a poem. You know, I'm reading a poem by a poet I really admire. And at a certain point, I think, well, okay, what would my version of that be? If I had to rewrite that poem, or if I had to take that form and put a different subject in, which is usually the way I do it, what could I do with that? And very often that leads me into something I would never have thought of in any other way. But it's much easier than just starting, you know, the the terrifying blank sheet of paper. So, so this is great, folks. And if you're feeling brave and you want to share the results of your experiment, then do drop by the blog and leave a comment. So, uh, if you go to twenty first century creative slash Eric, and that's Eric E R I K, then you can leave a comment after the the interview. It'd be really great to hear what you do with that. So, Eric, thank you so much for this. This has been a really fascinating journey into story. So if people want to continue the journey, then obviously they need to go out and get the idea, the seven elements of a viable story for screen, stage, or fiction at the usual bookshops. Where else can people go to learn more from you, Eric? Uh, well, first of all, I would say regarding bookshops, uh, try Amazon first. It's not necessarily going to be on shelves in bookstores, although you can order it into any bookstore mm-hmm. you want. Uh, but Amazon is the primary place to get it in both Kindle, ebook, and paperback form. Mm-hmm. In all the different countries, Amazons all carry it, not just in the in the U.S. store. That's number one. Uh, and the, the second thing is uh, I have a website uh, which is called Flying Wrestler. Dot com is the name of my blog, Flying Wrestler, and that's where you'll read you know newer blog posts as well as things about the book and things that inspire the book and see all of my coaching and consulting services and rates and how to book that. Um, and that's generally where you can contact me. My email address is available there as well, so uh, flyingwrestler.com. And th- that's great, Eric. And also, you know, picking up on what you were saying about finished script versus idea, wh- when is the best time for somebody to come to you? Should they come right at the beginning of the project or 
cool bunch. I mean, I, I, I think that's ideal is to come when you just have ideas and you want feedback on maybe even multiple ideas, but it can be at any point in the process. And a lot of times when writers come to me sort of midway through the process, what I'm still doing in the beginning is evaluating the idea and my notes on the idea end up having, you know, creating some changes yeah. uh, in what their approach, which means uh, restarting in certain ways. So earlier, the better, but still, I would say a, a sizable percentage of my clients come with a finished script and then I'll read the script and give, give feedback. And then it's like, okay, now what? These are major notes often. And as they go to, to do the rewrite, then we start, that kind of idea coaching process with the rewrite. Let's figure out the rewrite. We've gotten all these notes. What's the next version of this going to be? Or possibly another project they decide they want to work on next. So people might feel like they want feedback on more than just a log line, uh, which is understandable. So sometimes it's a synopsis. Sometimes it's like a four page, like save the cat beat sheet, Mm -hmm. um, plus some script pages. I have a lot of different ways that I work with people, but of course, my main premise, though, is if you can get feedback early on in the process, it can save you a lot of time and, and heartache. Great. So if they want to start that conversation with you, then fly, flyingwrestler.com is the place to go. That's correct, yes. Right, okay. And obviously, we'll have all these links in the show note as usual. So, Eric, thank you so much for your generosity and your wisdom. Um, I found it very entertaining, apart from anything else, as well as meaningful. So uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it as well, Mark. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the backlist episodes of the podcast at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, I do hope you'll subscribe in iTunes And I'm always grateful if you could take a couple of seconds to just go to the iTunes podcast app and give the show a rating. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up for the course at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.